I think you have to separate your own vision for how the world can be different with your process from understanding the problems that you see in the market. And one of the things that we did in the early days that I think was very helpful was we wrote a core thesis document. And we still refer back to that document because it serves as a, here's a stake in the ground of what our vision is very precisely. Today's guest is Lane Shackleton, head of product and design at Coda. Lane was previously a product manager at Google and YouTube and also had a stint as the founder of a wine company. On today's episode, we dive into how to organize teams for maximum productivity and collaboration and advice for founders on finding product market fit in the early days. Let's dive in with Lane. Lane, excited to have you in the pod today. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Why don't we start from the top? How did you get into tech? Yeah, so I started my career not in tech. Um, actually started as a mountain guide up in Alaska, teaching people rock ice and alpine climbing and bumped into tech really when I came to the Bay Area, came to a summer program at Stanford and just fell in love with the place. Yosemite, Tahoe, the Pacific Ocean, just wanted to be here. Started, I guess at that time, there were two hot companies in Silicon Valley. It was like VMware and Google. This is back in like 2004, 2005. And started making $35,000 a year, approving ads on google.com under Sheryl Sandberg inside of Google. I had a mentor at the time and his advice was basically like, Regardless of what you do in your career, you've got to get customer facing from the very beginning. And that turned out to be really good advice. So I spent a year on the phone with AdWords customers, eight hours a day, total roller coaster ride. This is like back in the early days of AdWords. One minute getting told that a business grew from one to a hundred people. The next minute getting told that we sold $10,000 from someone because they didn't understand billing. Like it was just crazy at that time. So that was worked in a bunch of customer facing roles inside of Google, worked in internal tools teams, had a bit of a detour, started a wine company along the way when I was at Google, made a lot of mistakes there, grew that to 4,000 cases a year, which is fun. Yeah, I can talk about after that as well. What is it about customer facing roles that is so important to experience? Yeah, I think it's two things. One is I think that people who are steeped in technology have a, an obvious advantage in tech. They can build, they can make, they are proficient at the core language of computers and tools. But at the end of the day, it's humans using software. And I think to have to be put in the position of serving a customer of being in front of them while they struggle with your software, of having to be on the phone with them, guiding them through a complex interface. It just gives you a level of empathy for the problem space that I think if you have that level of empathy, curiosity about how humans work and how humans use software, and you have the ability to like make it and manipulate it, that's, you know, that's uh, a dangerous combo. And, and so I think that's part of the reason that those roles are important. The second reason I would say is regardless of the role that you're in, whether you're a PM or a designer or an engineer, inside of companies, you're still selling ideas all the time. And so the ability to evangelize to a customer or evangelize to an internal stakeholder, tell a clear story, have a clear why, pitch your idea is important regardless. And so I think when you're put on the spot and having to do that with customers, 
you tend to jump into the deep end and have to learn really fast, which I think is good. So that's a great segue to talk about what you do on a day-to-day basis, which is product. I think a lot of folks think of product as a very amorphous function. How would you describe product at a startup? Every startup is product feels quite different at just judging by the companies that I spend time with. I would say fundamentally what you're trying to do is guide the organization from a strategy perspective, guide the organization from a customer perspective and make sure that you're building the right things and you have a set of rituals that supports doing that efficiently. I think inside of startups, speed is very important and triangulating around, we have a clear strategy, we have a clear why we're you know, taking on this big set of work, but then also making sure that you have the cadence and the rituals and like these processes that support getting it done and learning efficiently. I think one of the things I pay a lot of attention to is that are we learning something week to week as we're building? So it's great that if you can build really fast, but if you're building the wrong thing, that's a real, that's a really big problem. It's great if you can learn as you go. And so the trajectory, I think of products that get built really fundamentally changes when on a Thursday, Friday, you're asking a team, what did they learn this week? And they've got great answers for you. They've got, Hey, look, we learned that we were wrong here. We were right here. We're going to be able to roll this out to a larger set of users. And so I think pairing that combination of speed and building the right things is, is fundamentally what a, a good product or it goes well. You mentioned strategy is one of the things that a product team takes on. What is the right relationship between the product team and the product lead, such as yourself? and the founder when it comes to strategy? I think that depends heavily on, on the founder. Of course, certain founders are very product oriented, very vision oriented founders. Shashir, who's the founder I work closely with is clearly one of those people. And then obviously on the other end of the spectrum, there are just people who are great marketers, great sales folks. And, and those are the, the CPO or the VP of product type role there is just incredibly different from experience. I think to answer it in my specific case, I think the first thing you need to think about is, are you truly aligned and passionate about the vision that you're hearing from that founder? When you dig into it, do you get more excited? Do you get energy from it? Do you feel like, wow, I know how to accelerate that. I know how to expand it. I know how to like take that, turn it up to 11. When you feel that energy, I think that you have a good match oftentimes. And so there are lots of different ways from there that you can take, you know, that vision that you've heard in the case of Shashiri, like the way you described it, I was going to go start a company in the health space and kept going around Shashiri and just for advice. And what he described with software has been divided into people who can make software and the people that can't make software. And that is fundamentally an arbitrary divide. And that really resonated with me personally, because I came from a geosciences and anthropology background into tech and I basically had to teach myself computer science and how to write code in order to be fluent, in order to pass an internal hiring bar at Google and YouTube to become a PM. So I, th- you know, it's a long way of saying, I think if you get a bunch of energy and excitement for the vision, there are lots of different ways that you can then say, here's how we're going to accelerate it. Here's how I'm going to challenge you on that. 
and make sure that it's clear, not just in your head and my head, but for the organization, let's lay out the steps to get there. So I think there are lots of different ways to complement a founder's vision. But the first thing, you just have to feel excited to wake up and do it every morning and not just like for a year, right? Like hard problems take a lot of time to solve and doing that repeatedly day in, day out for, you know, I'm six years in Dakota is critical. That's awesome. And certainly as the strategy evolves, there is a responsibility to help guide that as well. So let's talk a little bit about the process side of things with running a product team. You've written a lot about the sort of presentation culture versus the memo culture. Can you explain your point of view on this and why it's so important for startups to pay attention to this? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we've coined this phrase two-way write-ups and I recently wrote a doc about it. I think it starts with a broad but simple observation, which is about every 20 years, the way that work gets presented, discussed, decided upon changes in some fundamental way. So there are three phases that, that I outlined in that doc. It's basically the first phase started with the invention of PowerPoint, phenomenally useful tool invented in the 1980s. And from that moment on, we could all manipulate things with shapes and put clip art and change the fonts of things and express ideas on slides. But there are problems with it. We've all experienced the like waiting for someone to finish a long PowerPoint deck to get to the media discussion. And that was actually one of the things that drove a move away from PowerPoint slides was Jeff Bezos wrote a famous memo that basically said no more PowerPoint slides inside of Amazon. And so they coined this other ritual, which was six page memos where they basically take a topic and say, we're going to write a clear memo on this topic. And then we're going to start the meeting by sitting there and reading it for 15 minutes. It was that plus the advent of Google Docs and real-time collaboration, the ability to comment together on a write-up that really, I think, was the hallmark of one-way write-ups. And one-way write-ups, to be clear, were a huge advancement over presentations, in, in my opinion. You could get to the meaty discussion. You had to clearly articulate in prose what was you know, your proposal. Two-way write-ups, I think, take a different approach and say they treat write-ups and proposals like this as a conversation with your audience. So they implicitly state that like feedback is an important part of getting to a specific outcome as a team. I guess personally, my story on this is I spent a bunch of years at Google and YouTube. I observed a bunch of problems. There are three main ones that I observed with one-way write-ups. The first was you didn't know who had read the doc. So like you'd send out a big doc and it would be like your manifesto, your vision, your project brief, your PRD, something. And you would wait to see avatars show up in a Google doc and wonder whether that like key stakeholder had read it or not. So you didn't know who had read it. The second thing was you'd get these mega comment threads where people would be just hammering you with debate in the hundred pixel right margin of that Google Doc. And that seems like a crazy place to have some of the most important discussions on a given topic. Given comment on spelling looks exactly like a comment from you know a key stakeholder saying that I don't think we should do this as an example. And then the third problem that I saw was the most important questions, like the, the questions that were gonna really drive the decision would get buried in these long comment threads or they would just be stuck in people's heads. And so, 
two-way write-ups very intentionally target these three problems. The first piece of it is there's a way to indicate whether people have read it. So in our case, so you read the doc, you hit a button at the bottom saying I've read it. And now I know, like I can start a Zoom meeting and not say who's read the doc and search for hands. I can start a Zoom and say, there's 10 people in this meeting, nine people have read it, we're gonna get started. So that's one direct thing that we've addressed. The second thing is we have a ritual that we call Pulse it's really important and it's a way of gathering structured feedback on a write-up. And the idea is, look, I don't want necessarily a stakeholder to just comment on little pieces of this proposal. I want the broad step back. I want you to comment on the whole proposal. Are you generally bought in on this proposal? And this was partially in reaction to something you see a lot in Google Docs, which is someone will come in and to show that they've read something, They'll make a little comment here, a little comment there, but you don't really understand like whether they're enthusiastic about the proposal or not. And so two-way write-ups and pulse as a ritual, you have a little spectrum of one smiley face to five smiley faces, or sometimes it's one coffee cup to 10 coffee cups, depending on, you know, what you're proposing. And people can, you can basically come into a meeting and see, look, most people are bought in on this proposal. It's everyone's a four out of five. So let's keep going. Do we even need to have this meeting? Like we could probably do this async just to take a look and, and see what the other feedback is. So that's the second piece. The third piece is Dory, which is something that we use a lot and our customers use a lot as well, which is trying to hone in on the most important question. And if you think about most meetings oftentimes are driven by the highest paid person in the room asking all the questions or one really loud person asking all the questions or the quiet person that has the good question not asking it. So one of the things that we do to address that is we just start the meeting by saying, everyone add your pulse, everyone add your questions, and then we'll take a minute to upvote all of the questions and you apply a sort to that table and now you have what's on the mind of the broader group or the broader team. So now we can have the most pressing and important discussion right now in the meeting. We can address that question and that's all in the spirit of getting that team momentum, getting them progress, like helping them resolve whatever they need to resolve. And we have a few little like rituals with Story where we'll have the person who wrote the question read the question so they can add a little bit of context. Like, here's why I'm asking this, or here's the particular thing that I have in mind. And it's a way to involve the group if you're doing this in a meeting context. Of course, this works async as well. And something I'm quite passionate about is seeing more and more of these two-way write-ups handle topics async. And I think inherent to the idea of a two-way write-up is that work should be collaborative right? A team should be structured in a way that ensures maximum collaboration. How do you think about that in your own team? How do you make sure that your PMs are collaborating amongst themselves and then also collaborating well with engineering, design, and other functions of the company? Yeah, I think there's probably two things to mention here. The first is, I think Coda in general has always held a principle of defaulting to open and transparent communication. And I think that's based on a lot of past experience of maybe not so transparent communication or just lacking context to do a job well. So as an example, 
inside of Crypto, we built a joint product and design team that was based on an observation from Google and YouTube. And the thing I didn't love about how certain teams worked at Google and YouTube was designers sometimes felt like they were cut out of the decision-making process. And that always felt really wrong to me, partially because half my friends were designers. And the other, the other reason is I've always had a deep interest in design and brand and things like that. And if you peel back the onion a little bit and you try to figure out why that was the case, my reflection on that was it's not because there was bad intent. It was because PMs became the de facto decision makers because they talked to everybody. They had talked to customers and they talked to designers, they talked to engineers and they talked to executives. And so they just built up this level of context that like it was impossible for everyone else to have. And the thing that I think solves that, and one of the reasons that we built a joint product and design team at Coda in the beginning was we wanted to default to everyone having as much context as possible. And we wanted to default to transparency. And what that meant was uh, that more of our product and design team could hold the whole product in their head. They could hold a lot of the context of the business in their head and I think it comes from respecting that you're hiring really smart, talented people that are capable of sorting through the noise. And sometimes it can be overwhelming when you default to transparency because people have to triangulate around what they want to pay attention to. But I think that's something that has served us really well over time. I think the second thing that I, I think about is just a learning on our side, which is that small atomic teams tend to function best. And when it's small, I'm two, two to three to four engineers and a PM and a designer and some research capability there. And the, the reason I think we found that is because it allows engineers, designers, and PMs to all observe what's happening with the customer, all be part of the rollout process, all be part of the initial kickoff. And so teams that kick off together just have a natural level of context that teams that stagger that don't have. And that's been, I think, something that we've continuously refined over the years, but definitely feel passionate about creating small atomic groups that also complement each other's superpowers well. And certainly having small atomic units implies that you're empowering them to own a piece of the product and run with it. A prerequisite to that, which you mentioned, is in the hiring process, making sure you're attracting the kinds of folks who want to do that type of work. How do you think about hiring as a product leader? What's your philosophy on attracting the best people to work with you? Yeah, it's evolved for sure. I would say in the early days, no one had heard of Coda. So it was describing our vision for how, you know, the world could change and having to be quite proactive about going out and finding people who we thought were great. Now that I think of a broad population has heard of Coda, uses Coda. We have lots of passionate users coming to us every day. I think we have naturally a different kind of funnel into our hiring process. Lots of different thoughts on hiring in terms of attracting uh, talent. I think one of the best things that you can do to attract talent is to find the best people that you've ever worked with and the best people that your team has ever worked with and then go hire them because they will attract other great folks. And so I think one of the strengths of Coda is just a really strong founding team. And so as you moved out layers and as you added more people, 
it just had a really strong foundation. And I think that sometimes people overlook that in hiring, but I think that's fairly critical. I think the other thing is we get to know candidates really well during the process. This isn't a big company churn through thousands of candidates type process. It's a, we ask you to do a lot and we ask you to really meet a lot of the team. And along the way, we very much expect you to ask good questions. And we very much expect you to want to learn about what it's like to be inside of Coda. And more recently, that's become easier because we're starting to publish more and more of our own rituals. Uh, so you can get a sense of it from the outside. But I think I want to understand the, the superpowers of the people that we're talking to. And when we are able to do that and we can explain how our vision may fit with that superpower, I think it's usually a good match. I want to double click into the early days of Coda a little bit and talk about the journey to finding product market fit. What advice would you give from your own experience to founders who are at that stage of your company and are thinking through how to find product market fit? Yeah, I think there are probably two separate pieces here. One is, I think you have to separate your own vision for how the world can be different with your process from understanding the problems that you see in the market. And one of the things that we did in the early days that I think was very helpful was we wrote a core thesis document. And it's, it was a long doc and it had lots of different parts, but writing that document was probably a month or so process where we really had to state what we believed. And it was before we had done a ton of customer research. It was before we had spent a ton of time with our alpha customers. And we still refer back to that document because it serves as a, here's a stake in the ground of what our vision is very precisely. And it was prior to us going out into the market. And I think, especially if your sort of product area is more vision-based, then I think that can be quite helpful. Now, some founders, that is like the opposite of what they want to go do. And, and I recognize that. And for those founders, I think the advice I'd probably give is you want to pay attention to your process for understanding those problems in the market. And after you've written your view of the world, lots of different ways to put that into the market in its lightest weight form. In the early days of Coda, we used a lot of like paper prototypes. We would basically... The first half of the interview, I remember I, I conducted probably hundreds of these interviews where we would spend the first half of the interview, I would give a really broad prompt and we would just say, it's Tuesday morning, it's 930, what's in your browser? Tell us about the next two hours. And I just wanted to see as designers and PM, we just wanted to see how information was flowing around and what tools were they using and why were they using them and where were they struggling? And it wasn't like they were articulating all the pain points. We were just watching and that was really helpful. And then in the second half of that interview, we would usually pull out of our back pocket, some sort of paper prototype and just say, all right, we're thinking about this go. And this could be how the documents work in the future. What do you think about that? And so that pairing of here's the reality of the situation today with, I'm going to, I'm going to force you to react to something very tangible and very real was really impactful. I think in those early days, I think the other thing, one big breakthrough that we had 
in terms of prototyping and finding fit with the overall product and then finding fit with individual capabilities in the product has been uh, what we call ad hoc environments. So one of the things that we recognized early on was in an experiential product like Coda, it's really difficult to simulate someone typing into the formula builder or typing into the canvas in a prototype. And it just feels wrong when you try to do that to people. And one of the engineers came up with this, this great idea, which is basically let's create a very easy way with one command to be able to spin up an entirely new environment that is full stack from database to UI, but only push one little branch of code. So we could talk about a change in those, in those days, and we still use this all the time. We could talk about a change. An engineer could write a little bit of code. It could be really hacky code, but we could get it on an environment where that we could then take it to customers and it was full stack so that when they typed a formula that referenced something in the canvas, it would actually work. And so I think that those types of breakthroughs were fairly critical because they just allowed the pace of prototyping and learning and iteration to meaningfully improve. And so I think that one piece of advice would be like, where are you going to get leverage in your process? Like, how are you going to go from this fast to 2x to 3x faster at learning and those loops? I love that image of asking open-ended questions and not biasing your interviewer to any particular outcome. So I'd love to think about the cultural elements at Coda that you think have stayed the same from the early days. Uh, for example, you mentioned transparency and how you believe those cultural elements have allowed the team to succeed till today. So I've been teaching a lot of new hire onboarding sessions because we're obviously scaling the team pretty fast. And one of the things that I hear back from most new hires that is surprising to them or one cornerstone of the culture I hear consistently is transparency. I think people are pretty sometimes pretty surprised at how transparent Coda is with everything from metrics to big decision-making meetings being open to anyone to observe to we even have a, a format where we treat the board meeting as a company all hands where the board is observing and the whole company is there. So I think that there are really meaningful ways that transparency shows up in our culture and I think what it does is it establishes a level of trust in, in Codens to do the right thing, given all the information that they have. So I think that's one thing. I think the other aspect that I would highlight from our culture is one of our values is right over familiar. And so I think this starts from this worldview that the world in general tends toward the familiar and there are lots of defaults out there. You hear the phrase defaults matter. And I think that's really true. And so one of the things that we think a lot about is if the predecessors in our space, physical, hypercard, everything up to Google sheets, if the predecessors in our space have created all the familiar patterns, what is the right pattern for the next, you know, 40 years, 40, 50 years. And so along the way, what that means is you have to be quite intentional about looking at what the familiar patterns are and saying, no, I actually think that there's a different way to do it. And I think that we're going to, we're going to put a stake in the ground that we're right on something, 
knowing that we could be wrong, knowing that we're going to learn along the way. So that is a big piece of the culture. And I think the way that that shows up is everything from the way that we approach compensation to the way that we approach the product process to many things in between. I think one early example, since we're talking about early Coda Life, was we had built a table and we had built a canvas and then we spent about six months putting the table inside of the canvas to make sure it felt right. This is very early uh, in the product process. And we were all excited. We thought this is going to be great. Everyone's going to love this. Shipped it to our alpha customers. And the resounding feedback was, why isn't this a spreadsheet? Like, why is this a table? Why isn't this just a grid of cells, just like I see in Excel? And that was an example where that was the familiar pattern. The familiar pattern was at the time, I think Quip was out there. And so they had put a spreadsheet inside of their canvas. And so we had to do some soul searching and basically say, look, we think this is the right pattern, but let's get clear on our rationale. We spent a bunch of time clarifying that, okay, actually, instead of index match and be lookup, we can do lookup columns. And that's a clear rationale for choosing table tables over grids or spreadsheets. And then the other one at the time was we think human readable formulas tend to be really important. We're going to invent the next software for the next 40, 50 years. Having to do battleship coordinates in your head, A12, B7 that you see in a spreadsheet is what Brett Victor would call playing computer in your head. And we don't want people to have to play computer in their head. If we just name the columns, tasks and status and things like that, then people can write these formulas with human readable language. At the time that didn't feel obvious at all. Like that felt quite risky to say this isn't a spreadsheet because people were so used to the familiar pattern. They were so used to dragging a line of cells and having some and all of the things that you get in a spreadsheet like grid. Lane, this was such a great conversation. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Inside Round is brought to you by Matrix Partners, an early stage venture firm. If you enjoyed today's show, subscribe for another exciting episode next week. I'm Kojo, your host, and you can reach me at kojo at matrixpartners.com or on Twitter at heykojo. That's H-E-Y, Kojo. Kojo.